most of us like surprises, especially when they're fun surprises. Uh, sometimes the surprises are a little more sobering and they're not as pleasurable, um, particularly when it comes to our, our eternal position with God. You know, John Newton, the great hymn writer, Amazing Grace, he wrote the hymn and great pastor in England in the 18th century. He said that um, he expected to be surprised when he got to heaven. He expected to be surprised both in uh, that there would be people there that he wouldn't have expected to have seen there, and he would also be surprised in perhaps uh, not seeing people there that he would have expected to see. Well, this isn't when you want to go through a surprise. And Jesus, over the past four weeks, has been warning us about false gates, people going through this gate thinking it leads to a place with God that it doesn't, following false teachers, thinking they're going to lead them to a place that it won't. Uh, He's spoken about false professions, those people who are under their kind of a self-deception that they're in a place with God that they're not. And that last day is going to be kind of the revealing of these things. Well, this fourth and final warning is about building on a false foundation. uh, That when the storm eventually comes, which it will, it always does, that the revelation is at that point too late to do anything about. Now, I want you to see this as the mercy of God. I want you to see that God's mercy is evidenced in the warning. He's calling us to examine our lives and consider our ways to strive to enter this narrow gate, to walk on this difficult road that leads to God. In each warning, Jesus reminds us of that end day, and he does here as well. So in our passage in Matthew 7, you're going to see two builders, and they're going to be uh, building two on two foundations, and there's going to be two outcomes, but there's only one wise man out of the two. And and the wise man is going to be known in three ways. Number one, he's going to be known that he listens deeply. He listens well to these words of Jesus. We're also going to find that he does Jesus's words faithfully, that he hears it deeply and he does it faithfully, and then he trembles before it reverently. So I'm just going to look at those three things as kind of a as kind of a a lens through which to see this passage. If you turn to Matthew 7 with me, 24 to 29, this will be the concluding warning, and then Matthew's kind of tying up the sermon at the end. So Matthew 7, 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So the first thing we see is that the the wise man listens deeply. Now, now you see the comparison right up front between these builders. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is the wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So the first contrast is how they hear. J.C. Ryle said it's really two classes of hearers. He's an English 
uh, pastor of the 19th century, two types of hearers. One hears it and does nothing. One hears it and does something. Now, you realize <clears throat> that he's not talking about two different types of people in the sense of a pagan and a Christian or an atheist and a Christian. Uh, these are two houses. They look the same from the outside. They're two builders. They look the same. In other words, Jesus is speaking to the religious. He's talking to the gathered community of faith. He's not worried about those outside the faith at this point. He's speaking to the church. These are two people who are very similar to one another. In other words, they go to the same church. They hear the same sermons. They sing the same songs. They pray the same prayers. They go to the same communion table. This is Jesus' warning. This is just for us in here. But the wise man is different than the other man. Because he, he listens differently. He listens deeply. He listens with intentionality. So when he hears these words, his intention is to adjust his life in accordance with what he hears. And when he hears, he, <clears throat> he hears humbly. He, he's, he knows he needs instruction. And so he's not coming with a, a preconceived set of ideas to the text. He listens submissively. So he's listening with the desire, I'm going to change. He's not, you'll, you'll notice him. He's not distracted. He's not worried about the clock. He's not looking around. He's actually challenging his soul when he hears the words about how his life has to change. This is the wise man who listens deeply. Now, the other man listens to these words of Jesus as well, but he doesn't do. He doesn't listen deeply. He doesn't take the time and the effort to listen well. He doesn't take the time to dig the foundation. He doesn't go through the expense of listening well. Oh, he, he may, he may uh, teach the word. He may know the word. He may be orthodox in his theology. He may have a knowledge of the word that's strong. But he doesn't do it in his personal life. It doesn't meet itself out. He is a fool. He's a fool because he thinks by knowing about Jesus, he thinks he knows Jesus. And there's a world of difference between just a cognitive understanding and a real-life relationship with Jesus Christ. In, in fact, uh, the Apostle John writes it this way. He says, The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He said it a little bit more boldly than I just said it. Or the passage that Luke read earlier in James. He says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. In other words, there's a, there's a sense of deception that when I hear the words of Jesus and I understand them, I think I got it even though I'm not doing it. But that would imply I don't have it. In fact, Martin Luther, another great reformer of the 16th century, he said, doctrine is a good and precious thing but it is not being preached for the sake of being heard, but for the sake of action and its amplification to life. So I think Jesus is kind of warning us here to not miss the kingdom by hearing foolishly. There is a way to hear that will damn you. You can hear in a way that is just to gain knowledge so as to impress yourself or others. You can hear in a way that just listens to how well the preacher breaks the word. You, you can hear in a way that you're looking for material to help adjust your spouse. Uh, you, you can hear in a way that is kind of like when the airline 
stewardess comes back on and she tells you about seat cushions and, and kind of oxygen masks and you can just kind of hear in a, very, in a very disinterested way. There's a lot of ways to hear that will work against you and that will end up damning you in the way you hear. It, it's, it's a dangerous thing. We, we live in an age where we're overwhelmed with words, billions of words. We live in an age where there's a glut of communication. We have shrunk wrap. Tweets are the way we communicate. Short sound bites. Visual representations with little words. This is not an age that is looking for objective, reasoned arguments to be applied to you and for you to think and grind through and takes time. It's much more um, feelings-oriented language, humor-based language. It's very much short, reductionistic type of communication. So it doesn't bode well for preaching. But we see where we are with it as well. And I don't think it's going to get any better in the near future. So I would encourage you to listen deeply. The the man, the woman who's going to enter the kingdom will be a deep listener. Uh, He or she will be praying, God, soften my heart to the word that's going to be dropped upon it. The deep listener knows it demands him to put away his complaining and grumbling and come to the word as a babe to milk. Uh, To listen deeply, you have to really believe that Jesus' words, like Peter said, they are life. Where else can we go? There is no other place. You know, to listen deeply, you have to rest yourself on Saturday night before Sunday. A practical issue. But cruising to bed at 2.30 in the morning and then trying to engage a culture that is reductionistic in their communication with a reasoned argument, is a challenging thing to do. It's challenging for you. It's challenging for me. So, so we want to listen deeply to enter the kingdom of God. But, but secondly, you want to do the words of Jesus faithfully. The second point of contrast in this parable is the foundations. One man takes the time, does the effort, grabs a shovel, sweats to dig a foundation. He's hearing the word and he's doing the word. He may love it, he may be impressed with it, but at the end of the day, he does it. Now, the word to do, at least in Greek, is used nine times in this sermon. And it's used repeatedly because Jesus is expecting his hearers to do it, not just to admire it. In fact, it also points out where we are often most lacking in the doing of the word rather than just the hearing of it. Now, what does it mean to do this word, to do the words of Jesus? Well, well, just go through, in your mind at least with me, what we've studied over six months. What have we, what have we learned? You know, start in the Beatitudes. The second Beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Are you mourning over your sin? In other words, that teaching was all about helping us understand that the nature of sin before God is to be mourned over. And that mourning would lead us to repentance before God and before others in our life. So have you done that? I mean, have you taken the time during your week where you do have a a moment with God and you think through your life, your personal life, your marital life, your family life, your community life, your your work relationships? God, where have I walked in such a manner as displeasing to you? 
and have you mourn for it, or at least ask God to at least feel bad for it. Some sins I don't feel bad for. I seek God's grace that I might actually feel the, about the sin the way he feels about my sin. But then you go and actually repent. So you can hear the sermon on blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But if you don't mourn, you're not going to be comforted. Right? Or, or go down the list a little bit more. Being a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. So have you been a peacemaker? I mean, when you have been in conflict, have you sought to reconcile it? Or have you gone to the side and gossip about what a jerk the guy is and, and, and not done anything to affect any change? Again, doing the word is just really doing it. You know, when we talked about anger, putting aside anger and reconciling. So when you've been ticked off at people, what have you done? I mean, have you, what have you done with your anger? Have you investigated your anger? Why am I angry? What is the sin of my life? How can I reconcile this relationship? Or have you just walked to the corner and kind of just baked on how right you were or how right I am? So that's what it means to do the word or, or take more. We talked about giving generously. You know, most of the church, generally the church budget's carried by a very small percentage of givers. So you look at your life. Am I a generous giver? God's calling me to be, you know, trusting in, in his mercy to care for me so I can, so do we give generously? Has it changed in your life? Or the nature of prayer. We talked about prayer, about praying passionately. And, and I kind of gave a whole sermon on just approaching God as a father. A loving father, the perfect father you can imagine. And he's inviting us to come and speak with him. So how's your prayer life changed? Are you more passionate? Are you more deliberate about your prayer? Because again, to hear someone on prayer and then not pray, you're like a man. You look in the mirror. I look right. Turn away and you forget what you look like. So we're called to do the word. That's what he means. We go back. Last night, I read through the whole Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't take long. Three chapters, five, six, and seven. Probably takes you 45 minutes. And you read through it, and all these things come up to you and say, God, I need to affect change here. I want to follow what you say because your words to me are life. Now, the foolish man is, of course, the one who hears it, understands it, may appreciate it, may admire it, may even teach it, but he doesn't do it. He isn't faithfully doing the word. He's not actually building his house on the words of Jesus. He may be building his world and his life in terms of his ambitions, his agendas, his hopes, his dreams, his desires, but he's not taking the words of Christ and saying, that's going to be the foundation upon which I decide. I spend my money, I think about my life, I use my time. Now, of course, he's a foolish man, as we're going to find out. He's a foolish man that doesn't build on the words of Christ, that doesn't follow the teachings of Christ. It, it reminds me in Ezekiel 33. And then just notice, if you will, the common personality or the common nature of humanity. This is a word from Ezekiel close to a thousand years before Jesus gave his word. He says in Ezekiel 33, As for you, son of man, so he's speaking to Ezekiel, who's prophet to the people of Israel, he says, Your countrymen are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses. They're saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from God. My people come to you, as they usually do, and sit before you to listen to your words, but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them, you're nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. 
what a condemnation for the generations to read. John Stott says this, he says, the question, he's a recently deceased theologian, uh, the question is not whether we say nice, polite, orthodox, enthusiastic things to or about Jesus, nor whether we hear his words, listening, studying, pondering, and memorizing until our minds are stuffed with his teaching, but whether we do what we say and whether we do what we know. In other words, whether the lordship of Jesus, which we profess, is one of our life's major realities. That's a strong word. You can hear deeply, but we're called to do faithfully. So, so Jesus doesn't want us to miss the kingdom because we're not doing what he's saying. So when you look at your life, are you obedient to the words that you understand? Don't worry that you don't know every word. The words that you know, are you beginning to move in obedience to those? See, there was a, a teaching that came into the church years ago, which I think is a false teaching, and that is about the carnal Christian. The carnal Christian, carnal is our word for flesh, carnal kind of means that I can accept Jesus as my Savior, but I don't necessarily accept him as my Lord. So you can profess Jesus as king, you can uh, have forgiveness of sins, you can be guaranteed eternal life, but there's no really clause there of obedience. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't think the carnal Christian is the biblical Christian. We can be repentant Christians, right? I mean, we can't be perfect. We're going to sin, but, but the Christian sins but then repents and seeks God's face. Even if it's every day we're repenting. But the, 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 the biblical Christian is dissatisfied with not living according to his words. Whereas the carnal Christian is saying, no, I made a profession. I, I said he's Lord, Lord. We don't want to be fooled like the guy in 21 to 23 who said, Lord, Lord, and I did all these things in your name. And what does Jesus say to him? See ya. I never knew you. I mean, that, you don't want to hear those words on the last day. Those are frightening words. They're very frightening words. So we want to build our lives on these words of Christ. In other words, I want you to engage your minds in assessing the cost. What's it going to take to get my marriage in line with these words of Jesus? you know, where forgiveness is part and parcel of your relationship with your spouse. Purity, you know, fighting that issue of lust. Anger is another just damning characteristic of many of our marriages. You know, what is it going to take for us to take these words of Jesus and inculcate them in our marriage, our relationships outside of our marriage, the way we spend our money, the way we use our time? I mean, all these things. You know, I, I think about the, the, the nature of even 13 to 16 in Matthew about, about being salt and light. Um, when are we going to walk that out? I came in at the end of Nick's teaching, and he had a fantastic picture of the uh, Calvinist with a big head stuffed full of knowledge and these little feet that aren't taking it anywhere. It's just stuck in their head, and I could see the, this this guy just packed with the knowledge of Christ, but he's not impacting the culture at all. You know, as you know, of course, the Supreme Court struck down that DOMA, you know, Defense of Marriage Act, and, and people are throwing up their arms and, uh, and getting very nervous about that. But, you know, the, the irony is that it gives the church an incredible platform to do this stuff and show the glory of Christ to people in this culture. I mean, you begin to walk out these words. You don't need legislation 
when you begin to see this bright display of God's wisdom and glory for the world. I mean, we're living in a culture now that while it may be sliding down, it doesn't prevent us from doing what he calls us to do. We don't fear the culture. God is sovereign over the culture. It doesn't mean we don't exercise our democratic responsibility as citizens. We do do that. But we do this first. This is what displays his wisdom to the world. So we want to hear deeply. We want to do the word faithfully. That's how we know that we're heading towards the kingdom of God. But then thirdly, I want you to tremble reverently over these words. Look at the third point of contrast, the outcomes of this storm. And you notice, of course, this wise builder who has built his life on the words of Christ, who hears these words, reads these words, and then adjusts accordingly. He's going to live this life, perhaps through trials. In fact, I would say that following the words of Jesus will often bring about um, more frequent temporary struggles in trying to walk out this life in a dark world. Uh, but, But he has the confidence to know that when the storms come, and they'll come, that he will not fall. And it's interesting, Jesus says it in the negative. He doesn't say it in the positive. He doesn't say they'll stand. He says, no, they won't fall. Why? Well, I think the intention is that when this storm comes, everybody's falling, but that guy. So, so it's the unique one. In other words, it's this confidence. They won't fall. Everybody else may topple right over. Not that one, because he's living on the words of Christ. It's a profound encouragement that we will not fall in the storms. Now, the the foolish man is not just foolish because he heard casually. He's not just foolish because he heard but didn't do the word. He's foolish that he ignored the warning that storms are going to come. He's a fool because he deferred to act. He chose not to take the time to dig the foundation. Now, you can imagine the other guys just digging the foundation, sweating, working his tail off. The other guy looks at the sand. It looks flat, looks decent. He's got his house building up fast. It's looking good. He's not doing half the work that this guy's doing. And you can just imagine he's kind of chuckling to himself as he's probably laying down in his house before the other guy is. But now, when the clouds gather and the rains begin to pelt against the roof and the, and the waters begin to move toward the foundation and the winds are blowing against the wall... Can't go dig a foundation then. Don't defer on this. Don't wait on this. Now, you you probably want to say, well, what are those storms exactly? Well, you know, I think it would be wrong. I think at least initially they have application for the, the struggles that we have in our life, you know, these temporal struggles, whether it's physical challenges, loss of jobs, sickness, trying to live a godly life in a very ungodly culture. I'm sure those are, those are part of what Jesus is speaking about. And those temporal struggles, and I need you to, to believe me on this, those, part of those temporal struggles, they're good for us. They're good for us. I don't like to suffer. I mean, I don't like to suffer at all. But, but I know that it's good in terms of revealing to me where I am on the continuum of faith. I don't want to get to the end and try to figure it out. I I know how I react in struggles, the place that Christ has in my life. This is what Peter is getting at in the first chapter. When he writes to the church suffering, he says, he says, in this you rejoice, that is the, the grace of God in Christ, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. In other words, it's in these temporary, <clears throat> it's in these temporary trials that we have a good look at who we really are. But these temporary trials also point to a trial coming that will be amazing. You know, Thomas Hooker was a British pastor who <clears throat> immigrated to America in the 1600s. He said this. He said, you can judge the lion by the paw. If you look at the paw, and that's frightening, look at the lion. If we go through these temporal trials that are sobering for us, what will it be on the final day? I think that's what Jesus is getting at, the final day. I don't think he's speaking as much about the temporary struggles. You know, the, the floods and the rains and the wind, they're all used for the final judgment. It, <clears throat> I should say God's judgment, at least in Genesis 6 and Isaiah, in Isaiah 28 and Ezekiel 13, about these judgments of God that he's going to bring. Uh, you see it in the text. All four warnings deal with the final judgment. In fact, in all of Matthew's discourses, there's a number of discourses in Matthew, and at the end of each section of teaching, he brings up wrath and judgment for the eschaton, or the end times. So I think he's speaking about a final judgment here, that that's when the house is going to not fall or fall. And that's why we talk about it today. So, so that's the warning. We want to hear deeply, listen deeply. We want to do faithfully, and we want to tremble, tremble uh, reverently. Jesus doesn't want to miss the kingdom because we haven't braced ourselves for that storm. Now listen, there's a narrow gate, there's a tough road, there's false teachers, there's deceived people. We need to brace ourselves for the storm. And uh, one, one way in which we do it, of course, is to travel together. The church gathering together. I think about the role of small groups in a context like this. When we're trying to live for that final day, we tend to so often be like when we were 14, and a, a week was forever. And, and yet I'm calling you to consider the nature of that final day. And we need one another to encourage each other so that we don't lose sight of that day by getting too caught up in what's five feet in front of us. We need to encourage one another. Now, I don't want you thinking Jesus is trying to scare us into saving faith. I don't think Jesus is trying to scare us into faith. I think Jesus is trying to awaken us to realities that will be ours. Now, listen, it wouldn't, it, it's somewhat analogous to me. If, if I wake up and I, I see a storm coming and I go to my neighbor and I start pounding on his door at 3 in the morning to wake him up because a flood's about to take his home away, I'm not trying to scare him into safety. I'm trying to make him aware this is a reality that's going to affect your life. Now, I, don't, I want to speak for a minute to the non-Christian here in this sense that when you hear these words of judgment and hell, it's easy to kind of turn them off because we don't see them. And, uh, but, but I would ask, before you decide whether you believe in hell and judgment or not, uh, the question for you and really for all of us is, what do we think about Jesus and his ministry and his words? In other words, if you can't believe in Jesus being who he is, then you can easily dismiss hell. But if you believe that Jesus Christ is authority, Son of God, Savior of the world, 
then you don't have the luxury to avoid these teachings that are either unpleasant or inconvenient. I mean, it wakes us up. And, and, and this is what we see at the end in 28 and 29. So we see that, that the wise man was one who listened deeply. He, he did the words of Jesus faithfully, and he was reverent before them. So what's the response here? Well, well you see Matthew kind of end his sermon. He says, and when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. They were astonished. That word means to be dumbfounded, to be just absolutely amazed at his teaching. And, and they were amazed at his teaching because he didn't teach with the authority of the scribes. So the scribes are more like me. You know, we teach um, kind of, you know, we're deriving information from sources and commentaries and different sort of authors, historical precedents, you know, but Jesus taught with a different way. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, he said, you've heard it said, referencing the Old Testament, but I say to you. So Jesus is now amplifying on God's very own word. Or he uses statements like, I am. I am the, I am the light of the world. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection. He's using I am language. I don't use I am language. He's saying things like in our passage here, if you hear and do these words of mine, then you will not fall. If you hear and not, do not do these words of mine, then you will fall. In other words, he's taking his words as the test that it will lead you to standing before God righteous in the judgment or being condemned by God in judgment. He lifts his words up to this level. I mean, Jesus is claiming an authority that is unmatched among any teacher. So the response is, what do we do with that? What did they do with it? Well, it doesn't tell us. They were just amazed. They wondered. Perhaps they left just in awe over his teaching. We don't know what they did. We have no idea what they did. What are you going to do with it? You've heard the same sermon that they heard. How do you respond? Would you say that you're a wise builder? Or would you say that you're a foolish builder? Are you foolish in how you've handled all these words? Uh, one foolish response would be, you could, you could leave here amazed as well. You could just be admiring what lofty ethic and what beautiful grandeur of word selection and parables and the way he said things. And I would agree with you as far as it goes. But if that's all it is, if, uh, then I would say, don't admire his words. Have you read them? Can you really admire what he's saying when he's commanding you to give everything you have? Can you really admire that when he says that you need to pray for those who persecute you when you have trouble loving those within your own family? I mean, do you really admire these words? These words are the most sobering words ever given. Can you admire it? It should cause you to fear. You know, John Stott uh, said, is a theologian in the last century, he said, uh, the Bible's dangerous because once you hear it now, you're responsible to respond to what you now know. So it becomes a very dangerous document for us because now you've heard it. Can't say, I didn't know. Now you know. So, so there's kind of the amazement response. Another response would be apathy. Apathy just in terms of 
You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, another British preacher of the 20th century, said the apathy, these guys didn't want to build a foundation. They're the hurry-up people. They want to do everything fast. They've got to get everywhere. They don't want to take the time to dig the foundation. They don't want to take the time to figure out what these words are, how they apply to my life, how can I adjust my life accordingly. They just want to move on with this Christian thing. Or they're the shortcut people. Just give me the, just tell me real quick, how, how do I do it? They, they don't want to sit and understand how it works. They just want some formula. He said they're apathetic. They're not willing to put in the time. There's also the arrogant response that we can have, which is, yeah, that's good stuff, but you know what? I've led my life for 45 years, and I'm going to just keep leading it the way I'm doing it. I feel comfortable with what I'm doing. They don't submit themselves. They don't humble themselves to the instruction of this one who says, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. So that's another response that you can make. There can also just be kind of the distracted response. Many of us are very busy people. We're working hard. And while we wouldn't say we're building our kingdoms on our plans, or whether it's developing success in the business world or, or, or physical beauty becomes an, a piece of idolatry or I want to be accepted by everybody and so I'm going to do what I have to do to be accepted by this group, you're just setting a new standard for yourself. So, so that kind of that, that distracted approach. You can take any of these. But the only wise one is faith and obedience. Or I should say, excuse me, faith and repentance. You know, for the, for the, for the Christian here, what it means is that you would repent first. You read through the sermon and you say, God, I have failed to walk in accordance with this. Forgive me, that we repent, we, we seek God's forgiveness on this. And then we move horizontally with those that we may need to be reconciled to. And to repent means that I've sinned against God, I'm sorrowful, I'm contrite, and I want to change. That's what repentance is. Always has that aspect of I want to change, not just, yeah, I feel bad about it. Well, that's no good. That's what, you know, Judas felt bad about it. But there's no change following it. The intending to change is a significant part of repentance. And then faith is on believing in these as the words of Christ. When, when sin tempts me with a, a beautiful picture of something, I'm going to disregard that and I'm going to move by faith, believing that the promises that Christ gives me through his word are greater than that which I think I can find from my own way of doing things. Now, for the non-Christian here, if you're not a Christian, when I speak about repentance and faith, I'm speaking more about, about getting right with God for, your, for living really treasonous to him, that, that you're, 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 you're actually seeking God to forgive you of your sins, that you'd be, you would be made right with him, and that you would believe that Christ is sufficient uh, for your sins. That To believe is to, to rest my hope on Jesus Christ, that his death and his resurrection... Uh, he has borne my sin, he has borne my shame, he has borne my guilt. The wrath of God falls upon him for my sin. So God exhausts his fury, which should be for you, to him and on him. And that Jesus Christ paid that and then was raised by the Father, showing that his sacrifice was sufficient and beautiful and glorious in every way. And so now he can look at you as a son or a daughter because of your substitute has borne that for you. So let's, uh, let's take a minute, if we can, and just pray. I'm going to start. Ray's going to close us. And uh, this is a time where we are seeking uh, to respond to God's word.
And uh, we want to do it thinking of the, of the church as a whole. And uh, we want to do it briefly so that others may pray and loudly. Sometimes we pray with our heads down and I'm unable to hear and others are unable to hear. And I want to agree. I want to say, yes, Lord, amen. I, I, I want that as well. And uh, let me start, and then Ray will close us, and we'll have a few minutes before he does. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in this glorious sermon. Father, you've given us a son that has, has lived perfectly, has spoken perfectly, has died and been raised, confirming your satisfaction in his sacrifice. And so, Father, would you grant us grace now uh, to take these words, and Lord, recognizing our brokenness, recognizing that sin dwells within our members, give us the encouragement and grace to begin walking in light of these words. And where we fail, we repent and enjoy the forgiveness that has been brought to us in Christ. Father, change us collectively for this, I pray in the name of Jesus.